You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I'm so excited to have Bree Onditch from the Georgia Sea Turtle Center that's located in Jekyll Island, Georgia. Welcome, Bree. Hi, how are you? Oh, awesome. It is so great to have you. We are so excited. Me and Angie have been like dying to cover sea turtles, and then to have a researcher on is just, we're, we're, we're tickled. So thanks for agreeing to do this. Thanks for having me. So I guess just first question, can you just kind of describe your role at the Georgia Sea Turtle Center? Sure. So right now at the Georgia Sea Turtle Center, I am a research specialist and I work under Dr. David Steen. And the largest project we have studying sea turtles on Jekyll Island is our long-term sea turtle nest monitoring and mark recapture tagging project. So that involves going on the beach and counting and identifying and monitoring sea turtle nests and also identifying and encountering the unique nesting females that are laying the eggs. And we identify them by placing livestock tags on their flippers, uh, same kind of tags you might find at a large farm on, on the ears of cows. And we also insert microchips into them, same kind that you can get put in your cat or your dog. And to do this work, we need a large team of people. And so I manage a team of eight AmeriCorps members that serve with us during the summer to accomplish this research. And alongside our wildlife research efforts, we're heavily involved with public education through just talking to people on the beach uh, all the way up to some VIP educational programs. So we're really involved with a lot of outreach and education. And additionally, the last thing I'm majorly responsible for is uh, assisting with our radio telemetry project, looking at movements of native box turtles that live on Jekyll Island. It's amazing. And I guess just real quick, if I could just jump in with this question. So where are you monitoring these nesting sites? Are they just in Georgia or the Southeast U.S. or are you working with international partners too? So we have partners all over the world, but our team primarily does focus on surveying the nests and tagging turtles right here on Jekyll Island. Okay, cool, cool. So I I guess what I always like to ask too of of my guests is just kind of, you know, if you can give us a a brief background, like where you grew up, obviously you're living in Georgia, um, but really, you know, where your interest in sea turtles and conservation began. Sure. So I'm from up north and from the northern part of New Jersey. So think mountains, Appalachian Trail, a little different than the image most people get when they think of New Jersey. And I grew up in the country. So we had about a two acre plot of land um, on the house I grew up on. So I spent a lot of time outside in the woods and really developed a love for nature and conservation at a pretty early age. There's a really small family-owned zoo and museum in that part of New Jersey called Space Farms Zoo and Museum. They're family friends. So at a really young age, they inspired me to really get into wildlife and nature. I mean, they let me get hands-on with tigers and foxes and 
and other farm animals like goats and cows when I was real young. So uh, one of my biggest mentors is from that facility. And, you know, in my backyard, I was always catching snakes and salamanders. We'd find <laughs> turtles crossing roads and, and move them to the other side. Just getting hands-on with animals was was really, really where it all started for me. Right. And we do have a, you know, we do have a, a pretty young audience too with a, a lot of parents that say they love to listen to the podcast with their children. So I think the take home message, you know, especially for parents out there is get your kids involved, right? At a young age. Yeah. Get outside and get dirty and, and catch lizards and turtles and see what it's all about. Maybe be careful a little bit on the snakes. You know, we kind of like just leave them alone, right? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So snakes are, are totally different and you know, you got to know what you're handling. Um, so, but I would definitely encourage checking out, you know, nature in general. Turtles, turtles are typically pretty safe. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just thinking of Dr. Steen and, and again, snakes are, are not dangerous. And I mean, they can be if you just leave them alone and they'll leave you alone. And, and that was kind of the take home message we got from him. Right. So I guess, where did your career begin with sea turtles? So I moved all the way from Jersey down to Florida to go to college at the University of Tampa in Tampa Bay. And while I was there, I really wanted to get involved in volunteering at aquariums. I was a marine science major, so I was really interested in the ocean. And during my time finding volunteer opportunities, I ended up at some sea turtle rehabilitation facilities. And it was pretty easy to get hands-on with uh, sea turtle rehabilitation as a volunteer. And, you know, I didn't really consider it to be a, a career path for me until I attended a scientific meeting after I had graduated college in 2010. I went to this meeting to present information about fish fish research and um Ended up attending a lot of talks about turtles. It's a joint meeting for ichthyologists and herpetologists. So fish people and turtle people and lizard people and snake people all together. And that's kind of when I made a transition. And I said, huh, people can study turtles and it, it can be a job. Right, right. And I, I, I think it's so, again, one of the things me and Angie talk about all the time is we just love doing this podcast because people like you are out there fighting for these animals. And it just, every species we cover, there are people out there researching them, saving them, helping them. So thank you for what you do. I know sea turtles are widely popular, but it's critical. Your your research is crit critical. No. <laughs> Can't speak today. So I guess one thing I, I wanted to jump in and ask is kind of the mission of the Georgia Sea Turtle Center. I guess if you can kind of explain that. I know we we talked to Dr. Steen about that uh, you know a few months ago, but if you can just kind of reiterate that to anybody that might not have listened to that interview. Right. So we are a really unique facility because we integrate um, three pillars, and those three pillars are education, rehabilitation, and research. And so we're we're looking to use all of those three things to really empower people to take responsibility for the natural environment and to be good environmental stewards. And it extends way beyond just sea turtles. We kind of use sea turtles as a flagship and an exciting way for people to to really learn about how to protect our environment. 
Right. And I would just say it's been amazing to see just in the past, I guess, year or two. And maybe you can give me your opinion since you're actually in there uh, fighting this fight. It just seems like there is a groundswell movement right now of the ocean, people interested in the ocean and trying to clean it up. Right. I mean, is that what you're kind of seeing from your end? I am. Yeah, it's been pretty heavily covered in the media in the past several years in particular. So it's very exciting. I think we're in a really exciting time to get motivated and start making some big changes. No, we need to. We need to. So I guess my next question would be, where are we with sea turtle conservation right now? Um, during the podcast you know, this week, we talked about, you know, many of the species are in, are in deep, deep trouble. Uh, from your view, you know, educated view, where are we? That's a really big question. So I'll, I'll start off and in, in talking just about sea turtles a little bit. There, so there's seven species and uh, there's, you know, about five that we see in Georgia. They're, they're found, all seven species are found all over the world and they all live in the ocean and for the most part only come on land to lay their eggs and they all have specific diets. Uh, for example, loggerhead sea turtles, which we see most commonly here, they like to eat things like blue crabs, while leatherbacks like to eat jellyfish, and hawksbill sea turtles like to eat sponges. They also live a really long time, and we're not even sure how long. Maybe they live a 100 years or more. And so because they live so long, it takes a really long time to see conservation efforts pay off. And we have been doing sea turtle conservation in the United States probably since around the late 1950s. So um, they do take about 30 years or so, based on our current understanding of their biology, to reach an age where they can reproduce and lay their own eggs. So it's going to take a really long time for us to start to see efforts. And we've seen a little bit of progress there with conservation. But just like different populations of people around the world, and some are doing better than others, some have a different level of health than others, the same is true for sea turtles. So there's some populations of the same species that are, are doing okay, maybe recovering a little, and there's others that are still on the decline and are pretty critical. Uh, loggerhead sea turtles off the coast of Georgia are doing okay. Uh, we're seeing an upward trend in the number of nests produced annually and the number of females. But uh, other populations like of the leatherback sea turtle in the Caribbean, for example, they're experiencing really, really rapid declines. So overall, um, there's some hope, but we, we still have a long way to go with our conservation efforts as, as a globe, as a worldwide population. No, that's a, it's an amazing point. And I know we kind of address that, the generation interval. And when we look at all these species in crisis, the ones like sea turtles, blue whales, uh, elephants, these, these animals that live a long, long time and have a really wide generation interval, it is really hard for them to recover. You know, they can't breed quickly, right? So, yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. So I think it's interesting. You you said, you know, off Georgia is, so what is the pressure, I guess, in the Caribbean that they're facing? What is it? Because I know I've seen in the media some garbage patches, you know, popping up there now. Is is that kind of it? Or is it just human development and tourism and disrupting nesting sites? So it's it's something that we're not sure we have a complete handle on, and the threats are going to change depending on your region. Uh, for example, 
while it used to be pretty common in the United States to hunt sea turtles for food, um, and that's largely not no longer the case. We're no longer killing sea turtles on purpose. That may not be the case in some countries that are a little less developed. And so poaching is still a problem um, of the eggs, of the adults, and other things uh, with just the infrastructure of governments and policies don't have the capacity to enforce it or, or prevent it from happening, even when there are laws in place. And yeah, I mean, things like you said, a reduction in, in nesting habitat is definitely a big one, but there's just certain things about the life history characteristics of individual species that make some a little bit more vulnerable than others. Right. So in your view, and, and again, your background, which populations are really, really in trouble? I know we hit upon a few, but we, you know, we're going off the IUCN, IUCN website, things like that. So from your research and what you're seeing, which populations are, are really, really rapidly declining, I guess. So again, I mentioned leatherback populations um, around the world are not doing so great. And others, uh, the most critically endangered of all is actually the the Kemp's Ridley. They're the smallest and most critically endangered species. And part of that is because they have a very narrow region of the world where they nest, where a lot of other species are found at a, a much broader range. And so uh, some of those species are not doing quite as well. Yeah, that's sad. I mean, it's just sad all around. Um, but again, motivates us, right? It motivates what you do. It motivates what uh, we do on the podcast. So um, I, one thing, it just it popped into my mind, and I don't know if you can answer this or not, is, is understanding, because we, we talked about how the females come back to the same beaches that they were born on, right? Do we understand how sea turtles navigate? So it's something we have a decent idea, but it's not fully understood. So for a very long time, uh, we did think that an individual female would return to the exact same beach she was born. But we're finding out with a lot of modern research techniques, particularly using genetic fingerprinting, that they may not come back to the exact same beach, but they come back to a similar region. And they, we think they navigate by using crystals in their brain called magnetite crystals. So the idea is that it works a little bit like a compass. And so they're able to use the natural magnetic fields of the earth to kind of pinpoint the direction that they need to be going, whether they're they're going to breed or they're going to eat or they're going to go lay their eggs. I am blown away. <laughs> like I'm sitting here writing this down. We are physiologists and I, and I understood birds kind of use this too, you know, using uh, magnetic fields and, you know, maybe even butterflies. I don't know. Insects can use it or I guess they're more visual with the sun. Anyways, I'm going to look this up and <laughs> we're going to cover this in a new, another species. Really? Is that's that. amazing. Oh, it is. It is. Um, so I, I guess right now a question is you talked a little bit about tagging and stuff. Can you just kind of describe some of the research you're doing right now? Yeah, for sure. So we as a facility do a ton of research. Um, it, 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 we have our in-house projects and we have collaborative projects that it's a really long list. So of course the biggest one I talked about is our sea turtle nest monitoring and tagging program. 
Um, we are continuing efforts that actually began as far back as 1958. That's the earliest record of a sea turtle being tagged on this island. And the basic objective is to contribute to the long-term monitoring of these nests and, and the individual females. And knowing those numbers is important to bring the loggerhead sea turtle closer to uh, what we consider recovered. So the eventual goal is to have a population that's stable to remove them from the endangered species list. So that's all really basic information. It's very similar to human census data collected for, hu for human populations. Um, and what helps with this monitoring is a collaboration I touched on briefly. It's led by the University of Georgia and their Sea Turtle Genetics Project. And it's pretty, pretty amazing. They can take one eggshell, fresh egg from a nest and extract uh, the DNA, basically match it to uh, the piece of skin from a biopsy from one of the adult turtles that we encounter and, and see which turtles laying which nest. And this is really important because, you know, we have a lot of beaches and areas besides ours that don't have nighttime work. They don't go out and encounter the adult turtles at night. So it fills in a lot of gaps. And we're basically doing a, a regional project or the University of Georgia is leading this regional project for several years that can identify every mom and every nest all the way from Virginia to northern Florida. So we have a very, very wide ranging picture of what these sea turtles are doing and how many eggs and how many nests each mom is producing. That's amazing. And I, I mean, I guess to get into some of the uh, logistics of it, because I, it, it made me think of, again, uh, we were in the ocean, so I thought of blue whales and I interviewed Dr. Kim Getz. She's down in New Zealand doing blue whale research. She uses satellite tags. So when the whales breach or come up to, uh, to take a breath of air, it hits the satellite and she can record where they're at. Can you kind of talk about how your tags work? Right, yeah. So the tags we place on sea turtles, they're what we call a, a passive tag. So they don't require a battery. Uh, they are minimally invasive. So think of like getting your ear pierced. And the microchip, again, is, is literally the same one that you can get at your veterinarian's office. In fact, the scanner we use has a picture of a dog on it because they haven't caught up and put the sea turtle on there. So we, we can just only identify the turtle if it's right in front of us. We have to read it. We have to read it with our eyes and with a, a scanner. Um, the satellite tags differ because you don't have to be next to the animal and it sends a signal to our satellites orbiting the Earth. And, and then you can look at a computer and see where your animal is located. Right, right. And And I guess my next question would be, so, you know, it's only the females coming on the beach, right? So do you guys ever tag males and, and able to, to kind of see where they're going? Well, so that's a good question. We see adult nesting females. Those are the healthy ones that come ashore. But occasionally a sea turtle will strand itself um, if it's sick or injured and will wash up on the beach. And those could be males. Typically we see juveniles and we're not sure if they're males or females. Uh, when we successfully rehabilitate those animals, they do get tagged with the same types of tags I talked about, the, the ones that are passive. And so if they ever wash up again or end up coming back to nest or um, we find them from another research project, we're able to identify them. Now, there are projects that go out and specifically target sea turtles using trawlers, and they are the ones that tend to be catching 
more of the males and the, the really understudied the males are because a lot of what we know is just about the females on the nesting beach. Right. I can just imagine it, it's, first of all, it's always about money, right? I mean, you, you need research money and, you know, the difficulty in, in, in seeing them because they're not that big and it's a big, big ocean, right? Right. Yeah. And, and the ocean's huge and they, the thing about sea turtles is they use a lot of different habitats. They use everything from the beach on land to coastal waterways all the way out to the open ocean. So it's a pretty tough environment for humans to conduct research in. Yeah. Have you, what's the farthest you've had a turtle go or have you guys been able to measure that? We have some projects that we've done. So we've placed some satellite tags on some rehabilitated patients. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those tags don't transmit for very long. We've had a few collaborators that have studied some of our turtles on, on the nesting beach and, and they've traveled several states away. Some of them will go down to Florida and some of them will go up to Cape Cod to feed. Uh, we do know with the genetics work that within a nesting season, we might have a turtle come and lay a nest, say on Jekyll Island, Georgia, and then swim north all the way to North Carolina and maybe lay a nest near Wilmington. And and they do this within a two-week period sometimes. Wow, that's amazing. That's Research is so fun. It is. It's so fun. So you, you brought up Cape Cod, and and I wanted to ask you, and I guess I'll just jump to it now. Can you kind of explain, because it's been in the media the last few weeks, what happened? I mean, is this a, an indicator of climate change where, you know, weather patterns are are abnormal is what we're hearing. So a lot of sea turtles uh, got caught up there. A lot of them died, froze to death. I guess if you can just kind of tell the listeners what happened and maybe what your best guess is of why that happened. Right. So this is something that is known to happen pretty regularly every winter. And so sea turtles in particular in Cape Cod, the, the theory is they're up in this hook, right? And they're trying to navigate south and they kind of get stuck and confused up there before they figure out how to swim north to kind of get out. Uh, a lot of the turtles up there are going to be Kemp's Ridley Sea Turtles. That's that really critically endangered one. And, and they really are looking to eat a lot of crunchy seafood. So crabs and shells, and there's a lot of that up in Cape Cod. And if temperatures drop too rapidly, and that, that's the key, it's the rapid drop in temperature, they they're stuck and they become too cold to function. And they're not dead a lot of times right away. They just kind of become stunned, kind of hypothermic, if you will. And then they wash ashore and then they get found uh, by teams of people looking for them. And they, they're a stranded turtle at that point. And a lot of times this happens in massive numbers and all one life stage. So a lot of our turtles right now are, are very small dinner plate size turtles. And they're all that size for the most part. And uh, they just, you know, they can't, they have to be warmed up very slowly and there's no room for them up north. So what we've been doing the past few years is having pilots volunteer their time to fly sea turtles in planes all the way down to Jekyll Island and other facilities in Florida that don't have as many turtles this time of year. So recently, last Saturday, in fact, we received a flight of about 15 turtles. Two of them were loggerhead sea turtles that were fairly large, but the other 13 were Kemp's Ridley's. And uh, now we have them all in our care, trying to warm them up and get them back to health. 
Uh, it's amazing. Again, thank you for what you're doing. That's just uh, warms my heart. Can you kind of describe the rehab process for these turtles? Sure. So it, like, I, like I said before, the way we get most of our turtles is through an event called a stranding. So typically they wash up on the beach with an illness or an injury. And uh, then they get called in by someone. It could be a researcher or just someone of the general public. And, and each state will have its own sea turtle hotline you can call. And then we get it some help. Uh, in Georgia, we're the only sea turtle hospital in the state. But like I just mentioned, we do get patients from all across the nation if we have more space for them and, and they don't. So we do need special permits to work with them. So not anyone can just go rehab a sea turtle. So we have all those permits we need and we get a turtle in. The first thing we do is we weigh it and we measure it and give it a basic checkup on a, on a hospital bed. Just like if you were to bring your, your pet to the veterinarian, if you notice something's wrong. And the first things we do are things like draw blood. We can count our red blood cell level protein level and glucose level and know how to treat the animal, what it needs. We'll give it some fluids and get them hydrated. And if they're cold, we do warm them up and usually about one or two degrees at a time. So it's nice and slow for them. These turtles are in fact slow moving and they have a slow metabolism. And uh, we, we check them for any internal injuries or illnesses using a digital x-ray machine that pops up on the screen. We can see it right away. If they're sick, we will treat them with some medicine. So a lot of times this is similar medicine that you would give a human or your pet. Uh, If there's an injury, we'll clean the wounds and we'll treat them with antibiotics. We do give them um, pain management. We'll use a, a compound called bone cement and bandage them up. And we'll use, you know, ointments like silver cream and even honey. Honey actually has a lot of antibiotic properties that are natural and it's waterproof. So it works really well for sea turtles that have to be kept in a tank full of water. And our vet is also pretty creative. He's come up with some pretty interesting techniques for kind of piecing a sea turtle's carapace or or that shell back together if it's, if it's damaged by a boat or something. So he's actually will take the hooks from the back of a bra and attach them to the turtle shell and then use kind of a twine to hold the pieces together. So uh, we get some funny looks when we go shopping sometimes and why we're buying, you know, 30, 30 bras at once. But yeah, I mean, you know, whatever you got to do to save the animals. And uh, they, they do take a pretty long time if they're, if they're damaged and, and injured to get well again, because they're what we call cold blooded. Uh, so a big word for that is endothermic. And that means, you know, like I said, turtles move slow, their bodies move slow, they take a long time for their bones to heal. Some turtles come in, maybe they just had a fish hook stuck in their flipper and they're out the same day. Others are with us for years. But when they're healthy, again, we make sure that they can do two main major things. And the first one is eat live seafood. And the second one is be able to dive to the bottom of their tank. Uh, and that's important because that's where the food is typically in the ocean on the bottom. And we don't want them to float around and potentially get hit by boats. So they have to be able to dive and eat live food. Uh, when the temperature is good in the ocean, we, we do a release. We give them those identification tags first. 
one last set of measurements and weights and we send them out to the ocean. Right. I, uh, I was going to ask you like, that has got to be the most satisfying thing ever, uh, releasing them. And I guess I wanted to ask too, where you do release them. If you can share that. Yeah. So a lot of our releases are right here on Jekyll Island. We typically do them when it's warm. So summer, sometimes in spring and sometimes in fall. And a lot of times we invite the public to come. We'll publicize it on our Facebook page and, and do some ads for it. Other times we are unable to release turtles on, on Jekyll Island. And this is a state by state case. So for example, turtles that come in from Florida are required to be released at the exact site that they were stranded. So we do have to make some drives to release some of the Florida turtles. Some of the other ones that stranded Georgia, we can release them all right on Jekyll. And so it is, it is very exciting. Sometimes we have crowds of several thousand people that come out and we make sure everyone's educated and knows about their story. And um, we walk around with the turtles so everyone can get a good look at them before we send them off. Uh, that's really cool. And I just want to say, you know, wildlife vets, they are amazing. So uh, what are, uh, from your, your, you know, from your standpoint, what are the pressures turtles are facing right now? And I guess kind of, I guess you can talk about the ones that you think are the biggest. You talked about boat strikes. So, I mean, is it human? I mean, we know anthropomorphic, we, we are affecting the environment. We are affecting other species, but specifically sea turtles. What is really critical uh, for our listeners to know about the pressures they're facing. So they, they face a lot of different pressures depending on the habitat they're using. Like I mentioned, they kind of, they have habitat on land and they also have habitat in the ocean. So it really all starts on the beach and on land. And this is where they intercept most of the time with people and their eggs are laid on, you know, on beaches. We like beaches too. And so one of the big problems on beaches is light pollution. And that's because sea turtles really get confused by white lights because they have adapted over time to really want to orient towards the brightest spot on the horizon, which should be the ocean. But with artificial light, they can go the wrong way and end up in roads and swimming pools. So lighting is a real big one and, and other modifications to the beach like uh, armoring it with a wall, driving on it, raking away the natural debris like seaweed. Um, and to a lesser extent, there's still some threats uh, of poaching of eggs and less less often um, there's still some natural predation of the eggs. And, and when they get in the ocean, anything when they're small that has a, a mouth bigger than them can eat them. Uh, but they also have the risk of eating plastic if they're they're tiny, they may mistake a plastic bag for a jellyfish, or they may eat a fish that has eaten small bits of plastic and they don't know. They can get caught on fish hooks, hit by boats. They can get tangled up in fishing gear that's left out accidentally, ghost gear, abandoned things. Um, and they can even drown in some of the fisheries trawlers that are used to catch the seafood we like to eat. And and when they you know get into the middle of the ocean, some of these threats continue. Um, and again, there, there's natural threats, of course, when they're in the ocean, like being eaten by another animal, or they might get bitten by a shark if they're a little bit bigger. But overall, the, the turtles grow to become too large to have a lot of natural predators. So by far, it is the human threats that take the cake on, on their threats. 
Right. And I just, I mean, just this past week or a couple of weeks in the news, there was that sea turtle. They pulled out the entire plastic bag from its stomach. You know, it's just, uh, it's sad. It's sad. And you talk about light pollution is because it made me think of, I think it was, it was planet earth two where there was talking about human effects and it showed all these baby sea turtles going towards a restaurant. Is there an effort globally to, because just my understanding of, of human population migration, especially in the United States, a lot of people are migrating to the coast. You're seeing like you go through Florida and it seems like there's homes on every beach. So is there a big effort to educate these communities on changing the type of light they're using or turning their lights off? Absolutely. So it is largely regional. So um, the, the laws and ordinances that are in effect to protect sea turtles vary vastly depending on your state and your county. Uh, Jekyll Island, for example, has the strongest lighting ordinance in the entire state of Georgia. We have well, five to eight pages full of rules about what you can and can't do with your lights just for the sea turtles. But it's not always the case in other places um, in the world. So there are a lot of educational efforts, and they're often led by volunteers that work at rehabilitation facilities or work with sea turtle projects. And so the best thing you can do is, if you know about these issues, is is tell a friend and, and share the knowledge, because it's really hard to educate some hotels have some information, but not all of them do. And even when they do, you know, people don't always read or even if they do read it, they may not they may choose not to care about the impacts they have for turning their lights on. So it, it, the effort does vary, but um, we really need everyone out there. If you if you know about sea turtle threats and, and simple ways you can help protect them, it's just to share that information with other people. No, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. And, and especially to any listeners that live on the coast, you know, make sure you uh, are careful with your light pollution uh, with that and check where you live. I, I have a quick question for you. I, I want to get to, you know, some of your educational efforts. With that recent hurricane that hit Florida in the panhandle, I, I know I was up on St. George uh, a couple years ago and saw sea turtle habitat and signs and things like that. When a natural disaster strikes like that, does that really have a huge impact on sea turtles? You know, in the immediate moment, it can seem to have a pretty large impact. But if you think about sea turtles and their adaptations over the past 100 million years or so they've been around, they, they've they seen hurricanes before. And they do have a reproductive strategy to lay a lot of eggs. Um, a, a single mom can lay, on average, four different clutches in one summer. And up to eight in each of those might have... 120 eggs inside and she can do that every three years as long as she lives so they do lay a lot of eggs and and they're you know not all of the eggs may be on one beach they may be on several beaches so they are adapted to a degree to handle the occasional uh, natural disaster and that 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 shouldn't have any huge population impacts now with the increased rate of storms and maybe the the increased strength of storms, if it happens a little bit more frequently than what it has in the past, and that might start to have an impact on sea turtle populations. That's amazing insight. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, great. I was thinking of that because then you talked about that one turtle laid in, in Georgia and then went up to North Carolina. That's great. So can you just kind of describe some of the educational efforts that the uh, Georgia Sea Turtle Center is doing? Sure. Oh, we have really wide variety of educational efforts. So 
we engage our visitors every day that come through our door about sea turtles and they come into our learning center, which is kind of like a, a museum portion of our facility. And we have daily educational programming and that helps guests meet our sea turtle patients in the hospital, learn about all of their natural history, uh, their conservation, our research efforts with them, and even a little bit about their veter the med veterinary medicine that we use to care for the patients. Uh, we also offer tours for children that are visiting in their field trips. So right now is field trip season a lot for our local schools, and they bring students in in groups um, and in the classroom setting. We also get into classrooms throughout the entire world by using our virtual learning program. So we kind of Skype in and, and introduce students in other countries and other states that are unable to afford to be able to come down here. We, we give them a Skype one-on-one -on -one with some of our sea turtle patients and an educator. And then um, we have additional programs. If, if that's not enough, we, we have programs where folks can go behind the scenes into our rehabilitation hospital area. And in the summer, we have summer camps that kids can spend an entire week learning all about sea turtles. And we even offer beach programs where members of the public can join us on an ecotourism walk or even come ride with us and, and experience research firsthand on our beach. I am coming when I get back out to Georgia. <laughs> Excellent. We look forward to having you. And then Angie, uh, I mean, Angie's just down the coast from you or there in Gainesville. So I'm going to meet Angie there at the Sea Turtle Center. Maybe we'll do like a live recording or something, but it, it's an amazing place and, and I've got to get there. So are there any other species you're working with? Yeah. So besides sea turtles, our rehabilitation facility actually treats all turtles and even some other reptile species. And so uh, there's quite a few native turtle species to Georgia. Um, so we'll get a bunch of those patients in and they face similar threats. You know, roads are a big one for a lot of freshwater turtles when they come out of the water to try to find a place to nest and get hit by cars. Uh, we particularly have a large program with a species called the diamondback terrapin and they live right here on the island in our salt marshes and, and several hundred turtles get hit by cars every summer on our causeway. So we have a large program in place to rehabilitate those individuals and to patrol the causeway and encounter the nesting adult females before they get hit. And if they unfortunately do, we incubate the eggs and produce additional turtles so that we can release them into the wild and hopefully offset some of the individuals that have passed away. Uh, and again, I mentioned earlier our, our box turtle telemetry program and this program is looking at movement patterns and habitat preferences for box turtles that live on Jekyll Island. So we go out in the field and use a radio transmitter so that kind of works the same way that your car radio works. If you're trying to listen to an AM or FM station, you punch in a number. And instead for us, we punch in, um, a, it's, it's a lot higher. So I think, um, you know, 100s in the 90s are what you get on the FM stations. So we, we're, we're looking at like 164 or so is the frequency we use. And instead of getting music, we just get beeps. And it's kind of like playing hot and cold. And <laughs> if you, you're hot, you get a loud beep. If you're cold, you get a soft beep. And so we just kind of walk until we find these turtles. And then we record information about where they're located with a GPS. And we take some vegetation data to see 
what kind of plants they like to hide under, if they're underneath the ground, buried in the soil, or if they're up moving around eating mushrooms or whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah, it's it's amazing the work you're doing. Something popped into my head, and and I'm sure you probably get asked this question, and and I think I know the answer. But you know, would anybody ask you why can't we just hand raise sea turtles and release them when they're bigger and more mature? So there are places that still attempt to do that, um, but we don't really understand enough about their natural history to be able to do that without knowing what the impacts would be. So one of the things we think happens when a sea turtle is born is that in the critical moments that it comes out of the sand and crawls to the ocean, it is imprinting on the location that it was born. So it kind of had, it's having a compass calibration, I guess, and orienting to where it is in the world. And that's really important for it to learn how to navigate. And uh, there's just a lot of navigational things with them and, that we just don't understand. So it's best to kind of be involved enough to mitigate some of the threats, but uh, largely hands off to let them kind of do their natural thing on their own. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, first money, you know, who has the money to do that? But second, it's, there's a lot of natural behaviors they need to learn or survive. If you hand raise them, then release them when they're older and more mature. They may not recognize threats. They may eat the wrong things, stuff like that. So I guess this this is get we're getting towards the end. I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I mean, we could talk this for hours. This is my big question, and I, and I ask pretty much all my guests, and and I always urge Angie to to ask this question: Is you know how do we convince others that the money's worth it? Fighting for endangered species is worth it. And then the follow-up to that is, do you feel we have a moral obligation to save endangered species? Those are both really good questions and, and things that a lot of us in conservation do struggle with all the time. Uh, but fighting to protect an endangered species or even one that isn't, it, it does have direct benefits to people, believe it or not. And, and that's a big take-home. So the threats to an individual species is not really an isolated standalone thing. It's, it's part of a very complex system. And when one species is negatively impacted, it cascades throughout the entire ecosystem and that can end up having negative impacts on other species. And eventually, if the entire system is under threat, and that includes threats to ecosystem services that people need to survive, we're not in such good shape anymore. So that means we have threats to our food supply, uh, fiber, you know, trees for building things, cotton for making clothes, water, the nutrient cycles that give us clean air to breathe. And then even deeper, it cultural services like recreation and spiritual values. I mean, turtles in particular have a really strong presence in cultural and spiritual realms. And some ideologies even have the turtle as the embodiment of the planet. And, you know, there's pieces of artwork I've seen all over where the world is carried on the back of a turtle. So, you know, we all just really need to be good stewards of our habitat and and the species they contain because, you know, really in the end it's it's it matters for our own health and our survival and we can lead by example when we do that and convince others to do the same. And it's a choice, you know, we have to make and each species is, you know, part of a complex system and we need that system to survive. So 
you know, you can choose to maintain a healthy planet just like you can choose to be a healthy person, whether that's exercising or eating donuts instead of oatmeal for breakfast. And I'm not really in any position to tell people what they should be morally obligated to feel or want to protect, but I do support encouraging everybody to become stewards of our natural world. And if it's not for the species like a sea turtle, then maybe again, just for our individual health and human survival and, and then the health and survival of our children and just the next generation of people in general. Oh man, that was, that was really eloquent and, and, and that's right on. Like I just, wow. You know, listen, you talk about it and I know your passion for what you do every day. Again, thank you. It's, it is, you know, I feel, and I argue that we do have a moral obligation because you're right. It, it, not just looking at these animals, but looking at my children's future, my grandchildren's future and, and future generations. And we're naive if we don't think it's going to affect the human species. So yeah, a, a great, great answer. I, just a couple more questions. Uh, big one is how can we support you in the Georgia Sea Turtle Center? That's a really great question. So there's lots of ways and you can do that even if you're not close to us. But if you are close to us and you can visit, you can just come pay admission, visit our facility, participate in an educational program like a behind the scenes tour. All of that money goes directly towards our mission, which is rehabilitation, education and research. And you can even support research specifically and directly, if you come out and participate in one of our Ride With Patrol programs, where you do get to ride with us on our fancy beach vehicles and monitor sea turtles and, and tag sea turtles alike, right alongside with us and, and see what we do firsthand. And if you want to take it a step further than that, you can become an annual member to the facility or even a volunteer and, and be part of our volunteer program. But a lot of folks don't don't live near us. So you know, how can they help? They they can still support us. And one of the more interesting and exciting ways to do that is with our symbolically adoptable sea turtle program, where you get to sponsor one of our patients. Uh, you can purchase a Georgia Sea Turtle Center license plate in the state of Georgia. You can also purchase an item that we need from our Amazon wish list, and that's on our website. You know, simple things like batteries and light bulbs, turtle food, and that sort of thing. Um, or just buy a T-shirt in our gift shop online. And and we do have a nonprofit arm. It's called the Jekyll Island Foundation. And they're the nonprofit that helped us raise all of the funds we needed to build our facility back in 2007 when we opened our doors. And they are the financial backbone of our operation as far as donations go. They support conservation, preservation, and education efforts for all the departments on Jekyll Island. And we're part of that bigger mission. So at people that are really interested in supporting our mission through um, a generous donation, uh, they can do so on behalf of the Georgia Sea Turtle Center through that foundation. Oh, that's amazing. I am going to go on your Amazon wish list. I will make sure I put these links up on our show notes. If everybody that's listening and just feeling like, oh, you know, you can throw $5 for batteries or something like that, that would really help them out. I know my time in the in the trenches doing research, like that stuff, is invaluable to your bottom line. Yeah. So final question, any, I guess for you, anything you really want our listeners to uh, take home message about sea turtles? We just really want everyone to be really excited about sea turtles and 
take any opportunity you can, whether it's coming to visit us or another rehabilitation facility or just another aquarium, and take the time to learn a little bit about the conservation efforts those facilities are doing and ways that you can help. And again, there a lot of those ways you can help are pretty simple. Um, you can just pick up trash. You can turn your lights off. At night, if you're going to the beach, you can knock down your sandcastles and, and fill in holes so that there's no obstacles for sea turtles. And just volunteer your time, you know, at any environmental organization throughout the country. And we hope that sea turtles, you know, they're, they're very charismatic and they're very cool. And we hope that kind of opens the door for people to become a little bit more aware and excited about just protecting everything that lives on land and, and in the ocean. Well, Bree, it was a, it was a pleasure. Bree Onditch from the Georgia Sea Turtle Center there in Jekyll Island, Georgia in the United States. I, I can't thank you enough. I know this is going to be a very popular episode. It just thank you for what you do. Thank you for your time. And I will, the next time I'm, I'm near your vicinity, I will email you and uh, Dr. Steen and me and Angie are going to come up and, and get one of those behind the scene tours. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you. Take care.